Hey, filmmakers, you are with the Intuitive Filmmaker Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Page, and today I am here with Colette Friedman. And you're going to find out why I love her through this podcast, but you got to know she's an internationally produced uh, novelist, playwright, she's a screenwriter, actor, producer. I mean, you're pretty much everything. She's also like a, like a, like a guru to those of us who follow her social media and you're like always in your boot camp and you're doing things and you're making inspiring us all around the world and <laughs> now you're like I quit it's too yeah, much it's yeah, too much I'm pressure yeah. <laughs> thank you for coming and joining us I'm very curious to talk to you about ghostwriting what is that like what is that whole process like for you I love ghostwriting because okay as someone who started as an actor my favorite thing is getting into the heads of characters yeah. so if I'm ghostwriting I'm getting into the head of the client and so it becomes a safe place for them, and I get to tell their story through their voice. I also don't have to leave my house. <laughs> I like any job I don't have to put pants on for. Right. So if I can wake up and work in my pajamas, it's a good day. Yeah. And ghostwriting, like, I get to tell someone else's story and give them the gift of their story. Now they're giving me the gift of money. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, we but it's a win-win situation. Have you ever... Has anything you've ever done been successful as a ghostwriter? And you're just like, oh, man, that was like all my work. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> of course, I'm human. And I'm like, oh, I would have liked to be on that book tour. <laughs> but you know what? I get to be home in my pajamas. So so as a ghostwriter, are you basically, so I have an idea, but I'm not a writer. So I kind of just sort of talk you through like whether it's a play or chat or novel, whatever. It's like, okay, I think we should do a chapter on this and here's what I'm thinking. And then you sort of put it together. Yeah. I'm, I'm big on structure. And so, um, if, if you know structure, you kind of have this roadmap that you're comfortable with. And so I will listen to the person's story and then kind of navigate them down the road. It's a, it's, we work together. I mean, yeah. I'm not writing it 100%. I'm forcing you to do a lot of homework. Um, and then I'm just making your homework pretty. Yeah. I would say it's like we're baking a cake together and then I'm essentially frosting it. Colette is very good at this, by the way, because we recently got to hire you for a short film for a client. I love that film. I do too. And I'm so when it gets made. Yeah. Uh, but the it was one of those like we came to you with like, here's some here's two sentence log lines we're thinking. Which one do you are you like drawn to? And then you you picked one, which thankfully was the same one I loved. And then, and then you kind of kept asking us questions, and then and going sort of like really getting in our brains. You really did that. And then you came back within like I want to say two hours. It might have been two <laughs> days. Um, it was so fast with this great short film. And then we gave you like a round of notes that you, which wasn't much. And then you tweaked, and then there it is. It's ready to be done. Yep. Like. I can tell either you do it a lot or you have a natural gift or probably both. It's both. You know, I'm also super low maintenance and I have a no assholes allowed policy. So <laughs> my only thing, you know, when I meet with a potential client is I just have to make sure they're not a dick yeah. because it's a lot of my time and that's more valuable, you know, than money. So I want to make sure I gel with the person. I've had a couple of bad experiences in the past. Well, one bad experience in the past, which really made me reevaluate how I take clients. Yeah, I think it took me, and we talk about that a lot on this show, because it took me 10 years to learn that lesson, where you like, at first it was just like, you know, oh, I'll ignore this red flag because I like the person. And then eventually you have to stop ignoring all the flags. Like it doesn't just continue to like the person and don't work with mm -hmm. them yep. because flags mean something. Your gut, your intuition, it tells you what's right and wrong. You have actually had a lot of scripts produced, whether in, you know, in the theater world or in the film world. Um, where do your inspiration, your ideas come from for your original stories? 
uh, for original stories, it, it's so much of the time I'm writing what other people want me to write. So um, when I have the luxury of doing my own stuff, it you know it comes from my life. Everything comes from your life. Yeah. You know my my I guess flagship um, story, which put me on the map, was something called Sister Cities, and it was about four strange sisters who reunite for their mom's alleged suicide. Now. That came up in a play because my best friend, who was a famous actress in England, wanted to quit acting. She goes, oh, darling, I'll only, I'll only act again if I play a corpse. <laughs> so I was like, ooh, a play about a corpse. And then subsequently, my grandmother got Alzheimer's, and my mom kept saying to me every single time I talked to her on the phone, sweetheart, you need to kill me if oh. I get Alzheimer's. So I had a corpse and a mother who asks her daughter to kill her. Bam, Sister yeah. Cities. So, you know, I always say everyone is a writer. Maybe you're not as um, uh, efficient or proficient or, or talented as you would like to be, but everyone has amazing ideas, yeah. and generally they they come from your own life. And I think a lot of times we um, push away those ideas like we, you know, like, oh, that's stupid. Nobody wants to, you know, hear that or or that's not original. And I don't think, at this point, there's really nothing that's completely original. If you come up with something that's so original, that's probably why you win an Oscar. But I think everything's been done someplace. So it's like, how do you personalize that? How do you make it your own? And I think it's emotion. It all comes down to, I always see my favorite films that I like to watch have heart, you yeah. know, have a lot of heart in them. And it could be, you know, it could be fucked up heart. Like my musical Serial Killer Barbie originated because in middle school, you know, which was miserable for, 99% of the people, there were there was a group of popular girls. I spent a lot of time pretending they got on a bus and the bus went over a cliff. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, that's a dark, sadistic thing, and I never, you know, <laughs> fulfilled that dream, I suppose. But then I wrote this musical, which kind of explored what it feels like to be in middle school and have all this angst and confusion yeah. and you know, how would I get back creatively at the Mean Girls, which I did. I killed them in my musical in a very safe and funny way. <laughs> That's awesome. Also twisted. I love it. Um, so what's a project, like, I would love to break down a project of yours from the time you had the idea or someone came to you with idea, you wrote it, because you're, you're, a lot of times you write it, you're on set with it, sometimes acting in it, you're definitely involved in, like, you know, promoting it in the end, possibly distribution. Um, what's one of those projects that you had? Um, well, well, the project we're kind of currently working on now still is Miles Underwater. And that that's a great story because I'm involved with a great group of filmmakers and we did a play, we did a film from scratch called Quality Problems and we just we wrote it and produced it and acted in it and and got distribution. And one of the most wonderful things that came out of it is that the writer and co-director, who's also my writing partner, Brooke Purdy, her son, Max Purdy, was in it, and he was he was 10. He was a kid at the time, and he was so excellent. There's this scene about him discovering that Santa's not real, and the kid cried over and over. Every single take, the entire oh room was silence. You know, crusty old, you know, gaffers were, like, choking back sobs. And we thought, wow, we need to write this kid a film. So that was the first thing. The second thing was... Um, I want to pause on that so any actors watching take note. His role wasn't even the lead role. It's just put every little ounce of yourself into a role because you never know. I've done that before too. You never know when someone's like, I need to work with this person again. Yeah, and and so Max was the reason we wanted to write this film. 
And then our our director, Jen Prince, was from San Antonio, Texas, and Seedon Spark was doing something with the Duplass brothers called the Hometown Heroes Campaign, which was trying to generate work outside of New York and Los Angeles. So we're like, okay, we want to write a film about Max, and it has to take place in San Antonio. So now we have two things together. So Brooke and I kind of brainstormed, and we talked with Jen Prince and our producer, Jennifer Weberly, and the thing about San Antonio was um, uh, they had a lot of immigrants there. After Katrina, a lot of people fled um, New Orleans and went to San Antonio, Texas, not, uh, you know, not common knowledge. And so then now we kind of had a story to work on a kid who was a baby who fled um, San who fled New Orleans with his mom when he was just a kid and is essentially an immigrant and trying to figure out what his place is in the world. Now, at the same time, you know, we had a new president and there was a lot of political anger from our group. And the best way, in my opinion, to handle political anger is to be creative, yeah, throw it into something. It, yeah. So we channeled it into this kind of beautiful coming of age story about this kid who's figuring out who he is. And um, it was the same group from Quality Problems, and we begged, borrowed, and stole the money, and we did get one of the Duplass grants. So that That's was awesome. That was a little bit of money, and then we went to San Antonio, Texas, and we shot it for three weeks. I love this story. So is it in post right now? So it's in post right now, and um, they decided there is magical realism in it, and so they were just going to kind of you know not fake the magical realism, but just kind of hit it as low budget straight on as we could but um we've been working with this guy john munez who is actually great at um visual effects so now we're adding a whole layer of visual oh. effects so it's taking longer than we would all like certainly longer than our young lead would like yeah. because he's a kid and it's like we want it now we want it now but i think kind of putting in that uh, those extra months at the end is going to make yeah. it a really special film especially when you don't have a lot of money to do something you have to do it slowly. You yeah. can't. You can't do cheap and fast. You know. You can do cheap and slow. Yep. So that's what we've done. I do agree with that. I feel like a lot of times people rush out their indie films, and at their own detriment. You know, whether it's sound, whether it's um, the editing isn't done. I, I had a f I have a film now playing with Beethoven that is. I want to say going in th three years old. It's going to finally be coming out because it was a same thing. We were at Bar and Steel didn't get it done. We had. I had to edit it myself. Then I wanted to go through a ton of different like um, little marketing audiences to be like, what can we cut to make it shorter? Because it ended up being like over two hours. Because <laughs> a music film and you don't realize how full it's gonna be. Um, so I think any filmmakers, they, uh, if you're paying attention, stop rushing it. You gotta take your time. Now, should it have taken three years? No, that's a little too long. What is one of the biggest challenges you guys had shooting in San Antonio with no money? And a child actor. Uh, two child actors. Oh, two. Yeah, yeah, because we put a sister in it, too. It was a family affair. It was the Purdy family again from Quality Problems. So mom, dad, and two kids were all acting in it. Honestly, our biggest challenge was that we had to have a studio teacher because we were doing yeah. it legit. And Max was in practically every single scene. So, it, you know, scheduling was tough to make sure that we had him. And then a lot of times we had um, we had we used a lot of students um, as PAs and stuff, and one of them kind of resembled Max, so we would have Wilson, that was his name, put on Max's shirt, and a lot of the scenes, I was in it, and a lot of my scenes were opposite Wilson and Max's shirt. <laughs> That's so smart, though. <laughs> I don't, I, it's hard because, how old is Max again? 
now he's when we shot it, he was thirteen, and now he's fifteen. And if, unless he's a tall thirteen-year-old, like that's a tough thing to find somebody who's of age yeah. <laughs> to fill in. Um, but I, th I think a lot of indie filmmakers get stuck in that challenge of like, well, I can't because it's like, no, you can, and let's find a reason how. And that's a big thing. Um, our philosophy at Metamorphic, who produces these, um, we're big believers in yes and yes. instead of no but. Under this, because you, you are you all actors? Uh, no, no. I, I, That's I, such an improv actor. I know. <laughs> no, I slide myself in all of our projects, but no, most of the producers are legit producers who actually started in theater. So I guess oh, they all were yeah. actors and, and had that theater mentality, which I think is really important and is lost a lot in filmmaking, especially the bigger you get and the more studio-oriented yeah. you get. Because in, in a theater company, as you know, coming from acting, like someone sweeps the floor, someone buys the, you know, M peanut M&Ms at Costco to sell them for twice yep. the amount. Everyone is doing everything. So, you know, we're all doing craft service and looking after the dogs and cleaning up because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? I think that uh, actors who come from theater tend to be the most enriched in their acting because they've learned to dig deep into plays. Um, and also they've learned that they know how to use a drill because they've had to put the flats together. Mm -hmm. They understand, like, I'm glad I'm just the actor and I appreciate you over there, you know, grips and set designers and everything because they've done it. They definitely come with a different mentality. And I think indie filmmakers are also what the studio system is missing because as, as we make indie films, we're doing all that. You know, mm -hmm. I've been the director who's making the lasagna <laughs> at the same time. And I don't think that the studio system appreciates us enough, yeah. to be honest. That's funny. We just shot a short film um, that Doug Purdy, one of our actors and directors, did. And our producer was making the lasagna. <laughs> because, you know, again, otherwise you've got to go buy the food. So yeah. let's make our own food. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really liked Sister Cities. It's funny. With Sister Cities, it, which is, you know, you can watch it for free on Netflix, um, I'm actually most proud of the book. I, I did the play, the movie, and the book. I'm, I always I teach at a bunch of universities, and I always tell my students, if you have a great idea, it it works in a lot of different mediums. And Sister Cities is another example. Like it's a play. It's been done all over the world. It's been translated into languages. The the film there were there were kind of two. It, it's it was optioned a lot, and there were two incarnations of it. One had a whole different group of. A-list actors who yeah. were going to do it. Um, I think Liv Tyler and Allison Pill and it, um, Ava Mendez. Like it, it's interesting, kind of all the different actresses yeah. who've been attached to it. And so it has a terrific cast. Um, the one on Netflix, and I'm really proud of those actors. But so much gets lost in a film because films are visual and the camera tells the story. And as a playwright and a wordsmith, I'm like, where are my words? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was great because. After the film came out, I was able to write the book because I, I started to get a you know following from the film, and there's so much more behind the scenes that I could tell in the book that yeah. I couldn't even tell in the play and certainly wasn't available in the movie. So it's kind of fun that I have three different forms. It's so interesting because I in my brain, you had written the book, and that's where all of the sort of action started to take place because you had a book, which is normally the Hollywood process. It is. Hollywood loves IP now. And so, you know, if you have a project, they much prefer having a book and intellectual property out there that they can turn into it because everyone has a screenplay. That's so smart that you took a valuable movie that people liked, which I did. I thought it was great. Um, and then made a book, especially when we know people like me who are like, like, I love the Harry Potter books. 
They are like my favorite thing in the world. And I don't like the movies. I don't want to use the word hate. I just don't because there's no. It's never going to capture my imagination like the books did. It's not just the screenplay. It's like a novel no, no, no. that goes deeper into mm-hmm. the lives. Like I would be totally fascinated to read that. Yeah, and I alternate with um, the letters that the mom sends her daughters, and she sends she she writes them letters even before they're born. So we start like in 1967 with her, you know, dealing with her own dysfunctional family and thinking I'm gonna have girls one day and dear girls this is what I believe this is what I want and so she becomes in in the movie and in the play she has tiny scenes and she's basically asking her daughter to kill her in the book you get to see this fully fleshed out incredibly vibrant woman and then you understand the selfishness of her request because she was she was unapologetically selfish which we rarely get you know and and men are trying so hard to like tamp down you know how women should behave and and even women sometimes are like we wouldn't behave like that well she was a bitch she was a (laughs) delicious narcissistic lovable bitch and you know that's okay to make characters like that yeah because i mean there are women like that everybody's human everybody i mean i'm that person sometimes i'm sure (laughs) yeah we all are yeah for sure um Okay, I would love for you to pick up this uh, deck of cards, shuffle them until you decide you want to stop, and then you're going to pick a word. I'm going to pick a word, or I'm going to read the word off the card? You can read the word, too. And if I don't like the card, am I going to pick another word? Nope, you're stuck with that word. Okay. (laughs) There's no wrong words. Empowerment. For some reason, that's like the the (laughs) perfect card for you to pick. I um, can't imagine you picking. So am I talking about empowerment? Well, what comes to your mind when it, when you hear the word empowerment? Um, what comes to m- it's funny. I'm I'm working on a script right now about um, what if Amelia Earhart had lived, and it's all about empowerment, and it's about what our responsibility is for the next generation. And yeah. when I think of empowerment, I think about little girls today and the opportunities they're given that you know our generation pretty much was given as well. But but our moms and our grandmas like they had to work hard so that little girls could be anything who they wanted and um you know i love i love kids i love girls when they're in that awkward you know 10 to 15 what am i going to do with my life yeah. and just giving them the confidence that it that it it doesn't it comes from within it's all between your ears and it's how adults treat them and respect them and give them the confidence to be anything they want to be. So I'm a yeah. huge, I, I love empowering kids any way that I can. I don't even think you realize that you empower everyone that comes across your social media. <laughs> because your social media, one, is never negative. It's never boring. It's, you know, it's like every time you post something, it's like, you're, you're in boot camp, um, you're feeling great about who you are, you're doing some really fun film. Like Everything you do, I think, empowers others to go. Because I literally, I don't know if you know this, but I literally started boot camp because you posted about it. Aww. And I think that if using your social media, you're not even realizing you're doing it, but I think that you're empowering women and probably but empowering people um, across the world, across the globe, without even realizing you're doing it, which I think is awesome. It's so much about you. Thank you. Um, You know, I have to actually give my parents credit for that because I'm a militant optimist, and (laughs) it's, you know, in this world, and it's tough. A lot of times you do, you turn on social media, and you're like, oh, God, the world sucks. But because I'm, and I don't see the world through blinders, but I really do always try and see the positive in things. It's just the way I was raised. And so I guess that's, your social media is reflective of how you feel. And a lot of times I'm I'm looking for, you know, even if I don't see the silver lining, I, I do believe it's there. Yeah, 
I, I think that that's great. My friend Jenna Edwards has a podcast called the Aggressive Optimism Podcast. Oh, I like that. Yeah, she calls it Aggressive Optimism. And I think that in this business that we're in, it's possibly, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't, I've only really done this business forever, but I feel like we have one of the toughest businesses to stay aggressively optimistic. Or what did you call it? Militantly optimistic. Yeah. It's, it's tough because there's, we are facing, we, no matter what we do, we're facing rejection. You know, you cannot be in this business without knowing you're going to face rejection and get rejected. What is it about you besides, is there, is it just so natural or is it, are there techniques you use to go, okay, I feel like crap today. I mean, you went through something pretty hard since I I've did. known you. I did. My husband died and it sucked. And I went into a, a tailspin and, uh, you know, and I grieved. I, I leaned into the grief, which I think a lot of people are afraid of it, but I leaned into it. And, and ironically, it was boot camp that, you know, a year and a half later helped me get out. Um, whether it was the endorphins, whether it was just this amazing work ethic that I found again from these incredible women. But that was really helpful. Um, but but I don't think I truly healed until I was able to, again, <laughs> take it creatively. If you go to YouTube and the first thing you do when you type in Colette Friedman is my kind of TED Talk moth story. And it's about getting through the grief. And I think once I was able to perform it and tell the story as a writer and actor, I, I, you never really get to the other side of it. I mean, it's the price of love when yeah. you love someone. That, that's what pain is. But... Um, being able to share my story in a, in a three-dimensional way, I felt really good about it. And I felt like, you know, Mark Troy was incredibly influential in my life, and he's the reason you and I met. Yep. Um, and, you know, I feel like by being an artist, by, by continuing to put out books and plays and films and teach and help other people, I'm keeping his name alive, which is, I guess, you know, we're all going to die at some point. And that's all we want is to be remembered. And hopefully Mark Troy will be remembered in a really positive way because I'm helping tell well, that story. He does, it's funny because I, I took him his screenwriting class. I think it was maybe six weeks. And he's literally probably the biggest influence on me as a screenwriter. I don't even, I don't call myself a writer, but like as somebody who's, who rewrites scripts for, you know, as a director or whatever, I, I think of him probably, if not weekly, you know, like I think of him all the time and I always will stop and say thank you because I do feel like, and it's a little woo-woo, but I feel like there is an energy, whether you call it spirits or whatever, that they're still around, that there's a, that there's, um, that we can honor their memory by continuing to honor what they gave to us. A hundred percent. And that kind of answers your question too, which is what do I do when I'm down? I, I do believe the universe it helps you out. It puts stuff in front of you that sucks a lot of times, but it also helps you out. And when you lose a job or when you get rejected, it just means something better is coming along. Yeah. And you can either, you know, mourn the loss of something or you can think about how you can use that loss to make you better the next time. Absolutely. I really, really love all that that just happened. I cannot <laughs> let you go, though, without going into my uh, intuitive filmmaker if questions. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you had to quit showbiz completely, you can't write, you can't speak, you can't act. What would you do? I would travel. Just travel the world. Travel the world. I imagine you traveling the world, just helping people without even realizing you're helping people. Um, probably, <laughs> but I would also eat a lot of food <laughs> in a lot of foreign countries. I love it. Um, if you could only make one genre of film, Badass feminist comedy. Yeah. And you're so good at it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if you could work 
with any actor, actress on your next project? Well, it just Elba, but that's a little selfish. <laughs> um, um, wow. There's so many who are so good. Um, I met Judy Dench once, and I've been obsessed with her ever oh, since. So Judy imagine. Dench could, you know, eat popcorn in a film and do nothing else, and I would be content. Well, what's the name of the family that you keep saying? The Purdy family. Yeah. She needs, now you need the grandma to the Purdy family. There you go. <laughs> and she needs to play one of those roles. We haven't seen that in a long right? time. Um, if you could tell your younger self one thing. Invest in Apple. <laughs> For real. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think about that stuff all the time, the things we didn't know. Right? I'm always like, did I, did I not invest? Did I not get into Bitcoin at the right time? Because right. <laughs> like, everything's a dumb idea until it's not, yeah. right? And finally, if your ultimate dream came true, what are you doing? Honestly, I feel like I'm living my dream. I'd love to have a little more money because uh, this is why I'd be a horrible rich person. Because if <laughs> I had money, I would just give it to people who wanted to make their own stuff. Yeah. I would want I I feel like money's wasted on the rich because if I were rich, all I would do is like give young filmmakers money to go make their projects yeah. and, you know, uh rent out theaters so people could put on plays and help people publish their books. I would love to, so everything I'm doing is great. I, I guess just what I'm doing on steroids because that way I can also be helping other people a lot more. No, it's been one of my dreams forever since I started my own production company was that I would eventually have money to give to other women mm -hmm. to get their things done. Yep. Because I do feel like um, well, for the most part, everybody's underfunded in this business, <laughs> unless you're like, you know, J.J. Abrams. But I really feel like women are the most underfunded and people of color are the most underfunded group of people because we just, whether it, I think with women, what one of the problems is we don't know how to ask for money. We don't, or we don't like it because probably the better way to say it, we don't like to ask for help. So I love that that is a dream of yours. And I think it's probably a dream of a lot of us. And I look forward to that. Right. Well, true. Well, let's make it happen. Yeah. yeah. It's like we need to do, what we need to do, I'm going to put out right now. We're going to form like the coven of <laughs> I love that. of uh, um, female filmmaking. Badass creators. Yeah, I love it. That's going to be the title, too. I don't know what the acronym is, but. You are so awesome. I'm so glad we oh, got to have this talk. Finally, um, thank you for coming. To everybody out there, if you are liking what you're seeing, please share with one friend that you think would like it. And check out how you can win a Blackmagic 6K camera. It's right down below. And we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Intuitive Filmmaker Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, as that helps others find us, which helps us to keep delivering great content to you. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all of your other favorite podcast apps.